0: Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques, with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to Reliability Matters. I'm glad you're all here today. Uh, My guest today wrote a uh, a couple paragraphs on uh, his LinkedIn profile, and it it just fascinated me, so I invited him on the show. Uh, Let me read you, before I bring in my guest, let me read you uh, what he wrote on his LinkedIn profile. Results are important. How do I get my results? With the use of the Toyota production system's lean principles and my simple rule, don't waste time rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Go fix the problem. I believe in lean in, quote unquote, uh, processes and gain improvements through RIPs, rapid improvement uh, uh, projects. These projects are based on a standard of identifying problems, brainstorming solutions, attempting those solutions, and adjusting from there. If we're going to fail, we're going to fail fast and cheap. Uh, words of wisdom uh, from my perspective. So, uh, the author of that, uh, of that, Uh, statement is uh, uh, Patrick Stimpert from uh, Matrix Group. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks for being my guest today.
1: You know, thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, my my pleasure. Uh, So let's start off with not everyone knows really what the Toyota uh, production system uh, uh, lean principles are. I do know that from what I remember uh, in the probably 80s when Chrysler was, Lee Iacocca was behind Chrysler. And, you know, I, I, I believe it was him that brought in a Toyota and kind of put it in every factory and, and said, that's our competition, that's what we need to beat. Uh, and and uh, Toyota is known for innovating a production process. So uh, explain to, to me and my audience what the uh, Toyota production system lean principles is.
1: Um, sure. So the, the Toyota production system started actually at the Ford factories back when the first Model A's were built and the after world war ii the japanese uh, or the japanese companies need to restart their their companies with not having a lot of workforce um, so they looked at a simple way of processing and manufacturing different things and so um, they adapted these principles and over time they've changed a little bit and but they still have a core 14 values that they stand by um, and those all can be used in any organization. It's not just manufacturing. It could be in a bank setting in a um, office setting, anything else, as long as there's waste somewhere. Um, and basically when I start at any company, I, I simply do one exercise that people have never been introduced to what waste is. I say, okay, if you're right-handed, put a pencil on the left side of your desk, not grab it. Okay. We just wasted time. And so really if you can run with that basic philosophy and teach it all the way through your place, now you're a lean company, and you're starting to lean in, and you start moving in the right direction.
0: Excellent. Uh, relative to the EMS industry, um, what actions do assemblers take that are akin to rearranging the furniture on the, uh, you know, the deck chairs on the deck of the Titanic? Uh, how, is that, how have you seen examples of that within, within our industry?
1: Um, really, it's the, it's, it's, I, I coined it as the debate to death. Right. So we're just going to keep debating something and we're just not going to try something. And if you're doing small, quick fixes um, and you don't spend a lot of time getting to that point, then it's okay to fail. You're not going to lose a lot of money very quickly if you're just doing quick fixes and moving things forward. Um, It's the if you have an organization and most organizations that haven't done a lean process or had a management down reset when it comes to understanding mistakes, you know, human nature, people make mistakes. Um, so you really want to build your processes that one, you you always learn from a mistake. And so an organization that's not learning um, is really dying. It's not it's not helping itself. It's not moving its forward. Um, if you see if you watch and see any of the other industries, um, even manufacturing, that tend to debate until the death of things, they tend not to move forward. they can't they can't pivot quickly um, into the, into today's world. I mean, just going through COVID, the amount of companies that now are struggling to restart, I find that really fascinating. And, and luckily we ran the entire time so we could pivot every Friday when a new regulation came out, something happened. Um, it made having, having all these lean principles and having all these people in tune to that, that, Hey, we're just going to pivot and we're going to go, uh, really made it, um, I'm not going to say easy, but it made it, Um, so everybody understood what we were doing and how quickly we could change and how quickly it happened. So if you can if you made it through COVID unscathed, which we, which we really did, um, where we didn't lose any profitability, we didn't lose anything through that process, didn't lose a lot of employees through that process. Um, that's a company that's really pivoted for the future growth.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, COVID has COVID clearly was devastating and whatever silver linings, whatever benefits that eked out of COVID, were not worth the deaths that that we've experienced. So let, put that on the table. Um, one of the silver linings, I think, you talk about lean and and uh, you know putting the pencil on the left if you're right-handed, just as an example of of expended, wasted energy. Uh, I think what coming out of COVID or what the experience of going through COVID for businesses is is it taught that there was an awful lot of wasted energy uh, with the old methods of doing business. You know the the, the The sales reps in your lobby and the you know quote unquote two martini lunches I, I know those aren't done these days, but the, the equivalent of whatever it's called today, and um, traveling to conferences um, and and traveling across the country to see a piece of machinery that you might be interested in buying all those all those activities were replaced with virtual digital activities, and I think a lot of companies increase their bottom line not necessarily because production increased um maybe even in some cases production decreased but i think they still had a net increase in profit because they became way more efficient and and um you know through digital communication and it used to be you know like i said it used to be people would would just travel and and, and when you look at you know if, if you're to the point where to uh, express an example of waste you know, the, the, the few nanoseconds extra it takes to transfer your pencil from the left hand to the right hand. Imagine, imagine the five and a half hours it takes to get on an airplane to go to a conference and the four days of hotels and, and expenses and all of that, and, and you're not in the factory, you know, the loss of productivity. It's amazing. So I do think that um, companies have become way more efficient kind of as a result of the, the forces that COVID uh, brought on them
1: yeah it was a uh, it was probably early on March or April when we had all of our office and our sales force out working from home and um, fully engaged on teams and other uh, you know things that we are using to do that and it was myself and the president and the primary owner of the company were standing in the, the, the whole office structure and it's just really me and him in the building and um, and he goes you know, we're doing this right We're our on time is good. Our quality is good. We're not slipping. Um, and we're really not missing anything when it comes to maintaining our customer relationships and everything. I said, yeah, I, I said, I, I, it'd be, it'd be as, as tragic as it was and the deaths and everything but to, to not have this as a learning experience for everybody in the world, um, it, it would have been lost if we had not taken note of that.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, for sure. You talked earlier about, um, failure and, you know, making mistakes and, and learning. I also host another podcast called Concept Creation where I interview uh, entrepreneurs within the EMS space, basically company founders. And and we don't talk about really what they do. We talk about their journey, right, uh, uh, entrepreneurship and business. And, you know, it, we, we talk a lot about making mistakes and, and more, most importantly learning from those mistakes. And I think if you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. Um, you know, if, I, I would rather work with someone who's, tried something and failed than working with someone who's had a hundred percent success rate because hundred percent success rate is a lot of, I mean, there's definitely skill involved, but there's also a lot of luck and you, know, you can sit at a table in Vegas and you can have 10 or 15 lucky hands in a row. Uh, but there's, that doesn't guarantee that the next hand is not going to be a giant loss. So I, I, I love the idea of, of and the, trying things. Yeah. And, and that
1: kind of, kind of put that in perspective. Really, they don't light that city up for the winners. That's not why they leave all the lights on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Everyone. Every time I go to Vegas with we we my family all came from Scotland, so we we call our our house the Conrad Hilton because we host all our Scottish friends, and of course they all want to go to Vegas, and they all they all have a system. They 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 learn the secret strategy, and I I tell them the same thing. Look around. Look at these beautiful buildings. Look at these beautiful fountains and all this over the top stuff. And this is all created on losers' money. Right? So, you know, if you have a system. Yeah. Yes, you're not gonna you're not gonna last in Vegas because if you truly had a system, they you know they break your knuckles and throw you out the back door. Right? So, um, I don't think Vegas has changed that much. Um, before we get too much deeper into lean and, and and all of that, tell me a little bit about uh, Matrix Group. Uh, what is you know, who who are you? What do you do? What markets do you serve?
1: Um, sure, the company was was founded with two gentlemen. Um, in the early 70s uh, that decided they were going to service the underground mining industry with electronics. Not something you would say, hey, we put a lot of electronics in the bottom of mines and, and the equipment, um, but they did want to grow the business and service the electronics side of that. So some very rugged electronics built back um, in that period. And in fact, we still have a lot of those on display here at the company. Um, and then it was then the, the Turner family, Rick Turner, had bought it in the early 90s and uh, moved it from some uh, from the facilities down in, in the downtown area up to, uh, and believe it or not, to an old school system that was abandoned, a school building. Um, and what was nice about that is the environmental studies one and two you do when you buy property um, were very clean because it was sitting up on a hill site and it was also a school uh, system. So... Um, we've taken an old school building and we converted it uh, into a manufacturing office space, and then we've done three additions since. We're um, 90,000 square foot altogether. Um, four SMT lines, so surface mount technology lines, and then all the rest of the vertical build stuff that you do to get everything to box build when you're taking electronics to the final products. We're roughly about a 50 50 mix of getting it, taking everything to the box build, the final product. Um, we do, do direct shipment to end customers and customers, um, and we're roughly now, we're probably this year going to be somewhere in the north of the $50 million mark, um, and um, most of our employees, which is kind of, we're out here, what we love to call is the Silicon Valley of Western Pennsylvania, so um, multi-generational uh, associates that we've we've gotten from the different families, and then also, any of the families that put their children into, or put any of their kids into the military, and they survive on an aircraft carrier by themselves, or they survive in a submarine, that's the intuitive thinkers we're really looking for. So if they're, if they're electronics or electronical techs inside the military, and they're they're, they're stand right? You're out at sea, you have to survive. Um, those are the those are the people we like to get our hands on fairly quickly and get them in here. And um, really, use all of their intuitiveness talent to help us grow our business
0: and you have a military background, am i correct
1: Yes, that's true yep.
0: yeah, so that so you can appreciate the the way of thinking in the military Wh- which is interesting because you want people who are intuitive uh, and and you know self thinkers and uh, and that, and the military. I guess that's why you qualified—not just military, but people who have served on a on a ship or a submarine, uh, which probably, with particularly submarine, with very limited staff, have to think on their feet. They can't just have a set of protocols that they can't go beyond their their little space in life in military life, right? I mean, because the military produces both types of people: people who can think on their feet and who are intuitive, and it also produces. Um, just by the nature of the military um, people who are more structured in a box and, and would not think about going outside of their, their uh, little square. Is that, is that correct?
1: Um, yeah, I believe. Yes, I believe that's true. That's there's yeah, so two it's types a... of people that come out of the military and converting them into the civilian world, which I hey, every military person that comes out struggles with that. Right? Yeah. Um, I almost had to recreate my entire self to get, you know, the different places I work to go, Hey, all right, so how do you become a hard charger, want to get everything done? So now I got to make sure uh, employees and associates are getting everything done for me. Big difference, right? right?
0: You, yeah. military, sure.
1: you tell them what to do. And, and I had to learn that um, I no longer control the outcome, but those people that work for me, they do control the outcome. And so it's about taking care of them, doing the right thing. And that's really where I picked up the tire to production system and ran with it because it makes a leader a different leader. It's not just telling people what to do, it's empowering them to do the right things on a daily basis, and if they have a problem, stop what we're doing, right, let's, and one of the, one of my famous sayings on the floor there, you know, if, hey, if we're about ready to do dumb, we're gonna stop, okay, because there's no sense building a bunch of junk, there's no sense building a bunch of stuff that's so not gonna work, let's stop it, let's do a rapid improvement project, look at how to fix it, and then fix it, and then move forward.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. You you talk about lean in manufacturing, and I have to admit, I haven't heard of that term before. Is that a a term you coined? Is that is that uh, you know trademark uh, Patrick Stimpert, or, or is that an actual technique that's known by everyone in the world but me?
1: Um, so that's a Patrick thing. Okay. And um, one of the one of the things I always tell the supervisors, I need you to lean in. I don't I don't need you to say, hey, I'm doing this because. Matrix wants me to do this. I don't need that. I need people that are going to lean into the processes and run with it. And they've got to be willing to trip and fall. If they're not willing to do that, then they're just going to be a process taskmaster. And they're not really going to embrace an associate saying, hey, I think we could do this better. Right? Um, because we all get busy in our day-to-day, right? we got, oh, we got to pay people. Oh, we've got to get all this done. And uh, we still, at the end of the day, everybody reports to a PL. and l you, know, you still have to make money. You still have to do all those wonderful wonderful things. But if they're not willing to trip over and fall and get themselves up, um, I, I, I mean, I, you have to have a pers- certain portions of those people, but you really have to have that core group that's willing to lean in and make a mistake and learn from it. And that, I believe, is the toughest thing for senior management owners, presidents to really understand. There are going to be mistakes. Some of those can be costly, especially if you're, you're doing long, Kaizen events, and you're not doing quick, rapid improvement projects, um, where you limit your risk, and you limit your exposure. And you, you can get a bunch of feedback fairly quickly from associates that are into that process.
0: Can you give me an example of, of, a, of a lean-in experience where, um, versus a non-lean-in experience? So how would someone who does not embrace the Patrick Stimpert lean-in philosophy uh, deal with a project? And how would someone with that same project with that uh, lean in philosophy, um, navigate the same process, uh, the same challenge?
1: Um, so, really, here at Matrix, we've um, put in just a bunch of automation, and um, which is the way the industry is going. And some of that automation, um, we've had a, you know, we probably have a split 50 50 group here where a lot, I have people that have been here 20 years, 25 years, and we have people that have been here a year and a half too. And so, um, going through some of these automations, um, we really needed to to find uh, people that were willing to learn programming, um, learn robotics, learn automation. And it wasn't always the people that have been here 25 years that are your senior technicians, who have become uh, generally uh, can produce can produce very products very well. Can um, take a standard align that we've been producing or a product that we've been producing for 10, 15 years and having them pivot and say, okay, hey, this, cust- this customer is different um, and they're going to, the programming here has to do, follow different philosophies and different processes that we haven't in the past and uh, switching to that and getting people that really will lean into that process and, and know that it's a learning experience and I think the beauty in that is that the people that, that may have not wanted to embrace that lean in, um, they can generally be pulled with. And it, it doesn't require a supervisor to do that. It is, oh, hey, I, I've got this, you know, in some some cases here, it's my son or it's my kid that, hey, he, got, he figured that out. Now I'm going to go figure that out. And we have some of that here, which is, is amazing to see the parents of some of these kids go, all right, my kid Johnny, he figured that out. I'm going to go figure out how to program that AOI.
0: I'm yeah, it's kind do of it. it's kind of a riptide effect, right? I mean, it, right. it everyone around that sees the effect gets sucked into the to, to the fanfare kind of to, of of that process, seeing it yeah. be successful.
1: Yeah, if you're, that, and I call that the cadence and culture, right? If the cadence and culture is working, it doesn't require Pat to push everybody through a, a into the into the lean circle, right? It should be pulling people through, and and part of that number three principle is always create a pull system in your place, right? And so. Um, I don't if people are if people are waiting around for another department to get done what needs to be done or Something a task needs to be done um, Really? I want those people screaming at the top of their lungs, pulling pulling just keep pulling pull pull It helps develop your own cadence helps develop a a temple to the place And once people are accustomed to that that they can kind of resolve their own problems or at least go get their own stuff and fix their problem then you have some magic going on your floor that no matter what customer comes in the place, no matter what change we throw at them, you're going to have some pretty good results out of that.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. You spoke a moment ago about automation. Tell me more about Matrix, uh, your your team's journey into automation. From one offline inspection system to three inspection machines per line—that's a huge transition, including pre and post uh, reflow. And I'm, I'm referring to a, a, a case study that Ko Young did uh, with with Matrix. Tell me tell me more about that philosophy. What was behind it? What were you trying to uh, solve by making that extreme change?
1: Um, so all of all of that stemmed from a discussion at the Panasonic. Um, customer learning center in, in Chicago. Um, and I was fairly new to Matrix at the time. And so I took our most senior uh, surface mount technology person to that meeting. And they were all on the floor and they were trying to do their whole sales pitch and all the rest of it. And I said, okay, hold on. And I went into their conference room and it's a, I don't know, 40 foot conference room and I have a whiteboard about that long. And I drew out one surface mount technology line and I left gaps and everything. So I filled it. And then the the kind of the magical moment, that aha moment to even Panasonic at the time, I go, okay, so explain to me why 20% placement time is good and everybody's happy with that in the EMS side. I mean, as a contract manufacturer, um, I can't embrace that philosophy. And then uh, the standard lines were used that, oh, no, industry standard. And, you know, you're not a cell phone manufacturer producing the same things and they get 80, 70, 90% placement time. And I go, okay. Yeah, I'm not going to pay $2 million for a line and not get there. So what do I need to do in order to get a higher placement time? And so then we started really just whiteboarding out the whole thing, which is kind of the magic when you get into lean is that you just start whiteboarding things out and people start resolving things as you move forward. And we start looking at, okay, let's go no-go separators. Let's talk about, um, so we're really going to have, we're going we're gonna to replace parts, every, I don't know, three, four minutes on a a Panasonic line at the speed those things chew through parts. And we're going to think that every operator is going to have the rotations correct and he's going to put it under a scope and he's checking all that stuff. I said, you're not going to be quick enough even getting it to the line, much less check that. So let's put an AOI pre or post or pre-AOI before reflow. Um, And I would would tell you, uh, we even had quality people from our, where we supply OEMs that said, nah, it's a waste of time. Um, you really shouldn't be doing that. And, and kind of in my mind, I'm like, okay, so one more check to make sure I don't build a lot of rework stuff. I don't know so bad. Right. And so we, we had the SPIs um, making sure the right solder paste there's that. And then the next step was the, the, the one everybody puts at the end of the line, the catch all one. And then once we put that third one in, we could really see a dramatic change in our rework. Um, so we're, our yields were somewhere in the 70 percentile final yield type, you know, um, our first pass yields. Um, and then I drew a line in the sand here at the organization at, based off that whole learning experience at Panasonic was, okay, so at the end of the day, we're going to do first piece inspection and I don't care if it takes an hour to get the right, first one correct. And it's going to pass through all these steps. And then we're going to go because when you, when you can place, you know, ours ours can place about 133,000 parts per hour. You can build a lot of junk real quick and every bit of that needs, we have to strike an iron to it to fix it. And so after our first six months having a Panasonic line and we had racks everywhere that all needed to be hand touched and replaced. And because we just never took the time to actually slow down, and do it right the first time, and make sure once we once we hit the go on that that Ferrari, it took off and it went and it built good stuff. And so we had all our checks and balances, and then even kind of the last learning curve, which we're now we're finally going getting to, at the Panasonic was I go, okay, you have all of these people, and then I believe we even yeah we even got Ko Young involved and everybody else, and go why does none of this equipment talk to each other? How come I can't just push a board in the front side? And have a talk all the way down to the end. Why do I expect an operator to run up and down and change width sizes and all the rest of the things when I just think I put a good barcode on the front? On the front, and it should all talk to each other. And and now, roughly about two years later, they are not, they have the first version of it where Coyoung, Young, Panasonic, uh, some of the Ursa Oven, some of the other stuff is now starting to talk to itself, where you can actually put it in the front side and let the board go through and then. One of the beauties about management is management is you you always want to just take on exceptions. If it's a good product and it's getting produced, get out of the way. Just get out of the way. Um, but really, when you're only dealing with exceptions, we're, we put in go, no go, pass all the way through. So if one of our AOIs uh, picks up on, picks up a problem, it kicks the board off to the side and the rest keep going if they're good. Can happen. You can get some part shift. You can get some different things in, in reflow. So it really comes down to how quickly you deal with just the exceptions and then make the less of the line produce. And so we've went from 20% placement to now we're, now we're north of 40 productivity there. And um, you, you, just based on you, you
0: distorted a little bit for a second, uh, internet thing. Did you say 40, yeah. you're in the 40 yeah, percentile?
1: We're, we're at 40% placement on our wow.
0: Panasonic line. So
1: you we've doubled, doubled it. You
0: doubled it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But then, one of those great hearted moments when I went to the manufacturing engineers and I go, okay, we're there. Um, except for we're not there. Cause I really need 80% out of this line. So You're now we're trying there. to figure out. Yeah. Now we're trying to figure that whole thing out. So I let them take their victory lap. Right. And then when they got back in, I said, okay, well now we got to get more out of this thing. Cause um, in, in theory, you gotta, you gotta really think about your $2 million investment is if somebody else can get 80% out of it, why can't we? And I, fully understand we do changeovers, we do all kinds of other things and we have to feed the beast and the parts have to be there and everything keeps, needs to keep going. Um, so now we're really looking at the front side, how, how much programming we can do on the front side, how much stepping in and, and parts learning and all the rest of that we can do and then have it all teed up and ready to go and look at our changeover people um, as no longer just the changeover SMT guy, they're more like a NASCAR team, how fast they can slam it in make sure everything's correct, use all of that sophisticated equipment to, to, to take a look and make sure um, that way you don't produce anything bad. And that has been interesting and it's been really fun to watch. And most of these are young kids. Their first real cool job where they get to play with something that's worth $2 million. And, and um, to see them take off and go with it has been really, really fun. And it's been interesting to watch because it's uh, enthusiasm is very contagious in an organization. Sure. To see those young kids, see all those young kids take off and go, is now I have the quality techs and the senior guys that really could troubleshoot any board in the world and do what they need to do. Look at that and embrace some of that philosophy. Going well, Pat. If we, if you're going to do that, then I think I can produce a tester to, to keep up. And um, we're doing uh, we're doing some really really interesting things here now. Where we thought, okay, 30 seconds aboard, 40 seconds aboard, it comes off the end. We do a changeover, we are looking at assemblies now that we can do in six seconds, and five seconds. Those, that, you have to have everything dialed in to pull that off, just keeping it fat, just keeping parts in front of that stuff.
0: Um, Two questions, I I wanna go back to, you you talked about Koi Young and Panasonic all talking to each other now. Are they using a CFX, like the IPC CFX protocol? Or are they using a different protocol for that? Or is it something just proprietary uh, between those two machines?
1: Um, there was a consortium started, and I don't know what technology they're using. I can't answer that for you, but there was, that consortium is trying to finish it all the way out so that it, be, it becomes standardized communication all the way through the lines to, to include the handling equipment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know the. There, there's been a couple of of different protocols. IPC's pushing CFX, but it's all part of Industry 4.0, right? It's all getting everything to talk to everything to talk to everything. You, what? Uh, you're a contract manufacturer, clearly. Um, so, uh, you know that wrongly sometimes is is just you know it, it's a it's a race to the bottom for some contract manufacturers, right? They just it's how cheap can you place a component and, you know, how fast can you do it? And, and not a lot of value added from a customer perspective. Many times, um, as you know, as a contract manufacturer, that's the furthest thing from the truth. You, you do a lot of work that doesn't end up on a board specifically, but, um, what are, what are the common mistakes made when selecting or uh, working with a contract manufacturer? You know, are, you, you, you accept customers, you know, you hire customers as much as they hire you. What, what, what do you see the common mistakes that, that people make when they approach someone like matrix or, or J bill or Selectron or whoever? Um, What, what are they doing wrong in your opinion?
1: Um, Right now it's all about supply chain and how secure your supply chain is. And um, if, you have approached obsoletes and who's watching your obsoletes all those kind of value-added things that um, we generally don't charge for on our side um, but um, the one thing that we are more successful if we have a true partnership between the two quality teams and the two engineering teams um, we have a full engineering staff here as well and we do contract engineering and um, but we also have a very very strong manufacturing engineer support that intertwine with the customers and i try to keep keep that dialogue always open so if if you're willing to walk into a contract manufacturer and be open about um that we may have some issues in our design Uh, we may have some issues that we didn't talk about when it was called you know manufacturability um you know those are always things that if that's there's an open discussion and And really, if there's 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 an agreement to do an FAI, the first couple builds, the first um, what that looks like, and how collaborative that is, that's really kind of a really successful measurement for us. Um, You know, one thing that we've always prided ourselves on here is we're never going to be confused as a nonprofit. That's not going to happen. So um, we have to we have to take that all into consideration as we um, take on a customer. And then we have this uh, we have this really good ability at least, at least since I've been here, and, and the owner will tell you since he's owned it, is that um, yes, to us no is yes, right? The customer, we will find a way to make it a yes for a customer. And it, we don't always agree on price and we always don't agree on some timing. and we always don't agree on how much supply chain we need to lock up and who should pay for that at that time. Um, But we believe that we can, we can turn a no into a yes. And we feel very comfortable that we, uh, and we preach it through our organization. And I'm one of the largest chairman of that, you know, the the torchbearer of that is that we are a sales organization first. And I, and sometimes contract manufacturers, I believe get lost in that theory. They're the masters of the universe of producing. And I don't know if that's always true. And, um, you know, I, because we look at every escape here, and this is kind of the where we like to set ourselves apart. We love to do this. Is if it gets to a customer and there's a problem, we got a problem. There's there is an escape. And so um, what I did is I took all escapes now, and we have visual management controls on that. So the principle number seven in the Toyota Production System is you got to have visual management. And so our visual management is if an escape makes it to a customer, we assign whatever group did it. Through hole SMT cables, whoever got it, um, and that that sits on their gimba board the entire year, and they know it's their escape. They know it was their car to correct. They know they have to push back on scars and anything else to try and uh, really get that off their board. And so um, that has been one of the best learning tools here: is make everything as visual as you possibly can. So every associate within a cables department knows if they've done they've know they've done something wrong and. What it is is it creates that learning environment. Just don't ever make the same mistake again, right? After you've made enough mistakes and you never repeat them, you get pretty good at what you're
0: doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a very lean process once you can eliminate those mistakes. You talked earlier about, you know, you have a $2 million line and you need to keep it fed, right? It's 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 feeding the beast, I think is the term you used. And that's, of course, fed with components and, and boards. Uh, has the component shortage uh, affected those numbers now? Uh, are are you able to keep up with the demand uh, through alternate sourcing or or you know, you know I don't know more savvy purchasing? How has that landed in, on uh, at your company?
1: Um, the best way to put that is that we used to I I've, I've always prided myself to be able to pr- predict about 90 percent of the outcome and. And I feel really good in an organization where I can do that. And now um, we are staring at a four-week or six-week planning window that I might be able to predict about 60% of that. And so that is what the, the component shortage has, has done. Now, we've, we had some proactive measures put in place that, hey, let's go out and buy some things. Let's do these things. Let's have conversations with the customers. The customers that secured their inventory, uh, we're not having near that problem. Um, the customers now that are jumping from contractor to contractor thinking that the part shortage is just not something real. Um, we have customers that are struggling with that right now today. Mm-hmm. No, We have engaged um, our entire m- manufacturing team. So we have this known miss process that we look at 12 weeks, every order that's out there. Um, and if we can go find alternates, broker parts, whatever we need to do, we need to get that into the customer hands as quick as possible. And I mean, quick as possible. Like we need an answer in 24 hours, or the, the component may be gone. And so, um, everybody gets their task in the morning. Um, by noon, one o'clock, we say, okay, this alternate will work. And then we turn around and cycle that as quick as we can through our system.
0: Sure. And all of that extra effort, uh, extraordinary effort, really chisels away at efficiency. Right? It, it's it's leaning to the left for the pencil instead of the right. It, it times 10, times a thousand. That extra time one has to spend that you formerly did not have to spend chasing down uh, alternate components, maybe doing a little bit more due diligence on potential counterfeit, because obviously the shortage is is fueling the counterfeit industry as well. It just it just chisels away at at, at efficiencies, you know, that you work so hard to gain, right? Um, so you're a U.S. based, obviously, you're a U.S. based, Western Pennsylvania um, contract manufacturer. What, uh, with so many contract manufacturers offshore, uh, Vietnam, China, Mexico, others, what are, besides logistics, besides you being down the street or, you know, uh, uh, speaking the same language and all that, what are some of the advantages, in your opinion, uh, that a U.S. manufacturer brings to the table? Maybe maybe that advantage is not price, because, you know, labor costs are higher here, but... um, what, what, are, what are, besides price, What, are, what are, well, price isn't in it, but so besides uh, being local, what are some of the advantages of, of working, a U.S. company working with a U.S.-based contract manufacturer? What, what are the value adds, I guess is the question.
1: So really the, the difference that, you know, everybody talks about labor, and quite honestly, in the contract manufacturer of labor is your offset then you have way too many manual processes and processes that are associated with any one customer or any one build. Um, and so it really becomes down to how how you can support um, rapid change. And then with that rapid change, the less human activity, the better it is um, that, that you can pivot quicker, you can pivot quicker and take on new assemblies and all the rest of that. So if labor is the only discussion, and then there's really you're doing something wrong as a contract manufacturer in the United States, because it shouldn't not be so much labor driven, um, because the automation is not that expensive, in the, in, especially if you've tried to hire people in the last couple of years. And if you think that um, automation is expensive just keep changing the bottom 20% out in your organization, and I'll tell you how expensive that is, especially people that may not be as conscious about quality as you would like them to be. Um, it only takes a, a couple big oops to to really justify a hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollar coyam. It doesn't take a whole lot of oops to get there.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, in, in in your opinion, because we can eliminate a lot of the labor, which is the advantage of of offshore companies, labor. Uh, to your point. Can a U.S., can a lean, well-run, well-oiled machine contract manufacturer within the U.S. compete on a per-cost basis, a per-piece basis with pretty much any manufacturer in the world?
1: Yeah, so really tariffs would be the only things that that could blow us up. Um, But as far as automation and shipping cost and delays in ports and all the rest of that uh, items... Um, you should be able to compete, especially um, especially offshore, maybe not so much nearshore, but having relationships with near shores are probably pretty important as well, especially cable houses and stuff like that. But there really, if you lean out your facility and you automate, especially like robotic soldering, I mean, where everybody was hand soldering, um, there are there is equipment now on the market that looks like it'll re, it'll do about ninety percent of the through hole uh, hand placing that was being done. Um, there is inspection equipment coming on that will now do bottom side and top side um, solder and top side uh, parts components. And so uh, we don't believe we're on the cutting edge, but I got to tell you, it isn't much past the cutting edge of what we'll put in this place and run with. Um, because I do have that kind of one of that core principles is I don't want to put technology out on the floor that our people can't grow with and be part of. And so uh, we do want to test it. Uh, we don't want to correct before I put it on the floor, but getting machine two of the build, we've done that here before.
0: Oh, that's, that's amazing. So Patrick, um, every time something has to move from one station to another, that's a inefficiency, right? It's, it's, it's moving, but it's not gaining value. You're not value adding while you're moving product to line from one station to another, uh, from one manufacturing process to another, how have you arranged your factory floor to reduce the amount of movement to make sure that, you know, every minute on your production floor is a is a value-added minute?
1: Um, so early on, I grabbed the manufacturing engineers who've been here many, many, many years. And I said, okay, let's just take a little check mark, and we're going to mark off all the extra movements. And I don't really care about feet or inches or any of that other stuff. I just wanna know if we're stepping all over ourselves or what's happening. Um, because really you have to set up your factory properly before you start even leaning things out. And so we started at the back door. Um, actually, we started at the front door at that time. Now this is how long ago this was. was that we have dock doors, the ones in the front and ones in the back. And what happened is, what we would do is we would bring stuff in that we'd bring stuff in that one door, and then it would travel to the back of the building, and then it would start traveling its way forward to the door after it got through the receiving process, the whole T's and all the other stuff. Um, and then it would go into handheld carts, and then it would make it from the handheld carts, which now this whole time you have to envision, you've got people walking things back and forth and moving things around. So from, from stacking those parts in the carts to then go ahead and picking them, placing them, getting on the machines, Um, And then from there, it would backtrack back into the quality departments and the rework stations and some of all these other events that happen just in the vertical stack. We then, then we kept walking. Okay, let's go through the AOIs and the probes and let's go through where all these placements are. And and from there, you learn that, hey, they were stacking them up on a tray, removing them from a tray, taking them back off to a tray, putting them back on a tray, back to the next department. And those things just continuously happened all through the process. And and I think some uh, true northers or the, the people that they believe they're going to lean out every single thing in a place, get lost in the, the every one-inch movement and every two-inch movements. Um, you have to have some flexibility to breathe and understand that people make mistakes. If you pile up too much stuff on top of each other, you're going to get stuff lost. Things are going to happen. And so we took kind of a practical look that I wanted to at least make make it seamless so if something moved in one direction it didn't backtrack on itself again Um, so we created a figure 8 in our place which is how the design of the building is and like I said we converted the school building into a factory so um, we did the additions and those are more linear and and flat in nature Um, but everything has to pass through all all of this area and so what we did is we took all those extra movements and the double movements and walking over the top of each other And we rearranged all the equipment in the places that we know the next step is a couple feet away or three feet away. And so it gets, it that one, it creates that pull environment. So if I'm an AOI, offline AOI operator, if I'm a probe operator, an x-ray, oh, look, my stuff's right there. That must be coming to me. So I'm gonna go grab that now that I got some room, I'm gonna take off and go with that. And so it just naturally creates that pull atmosphere in our building. And so we did that all the way through, all the way to the shipping um and we removed a lot of the double handling or at least a lot of the steps where people were walking all over and so um that i that's the first thing if anybody has, has ever asked me to walk their building and go what i think i go okay uh, right now your flow is completely wrong and you you have you have you're going to get in front of your associates and you're going to have this conversation hey we're going to lean this place out and we're going to take all this work away and but then we're going to find work for you and all these other stuff uh, and most of them will go yeah but they weren't willing to really rearrange the building to make it right. So I don't know how much they want out of me. And so um, if you're not really willing to really look at that as how, and, and all buildings are developed this way, right? There's the first edition and then we add stuff. And then there's the second edition and we add stuff. And then there's the third edition and we add stuff. And very few times does anybody ever go back and reset the entire factory to line it up. And I was blessed with the owner here that let me do it. All the and I'm not saying there weren't times when he called me just a bit crazy, um, and I may not have I may not have known how it's going to turn out, and how it's going to look, but I did have a vision that I knew I could take all this extra steps out of there, and I really didn't want the full vision. I went to, we set up one area and I went to the people next downstream and I go, all right, what's most efficient? Where do you want things? And let's have a small debate and let's try some things. And yeah, we moved some benches around twice, three, four times. Um, some things happen, um, but I do feel very confident we've taken out a lot of the extra movements through the place and a lot of the extra handling and as As far as how that helps in our lean journey, it's very easy now for an operator to embrace change because if they know if they know I'm willing to pick the entire factory up and spin it, I think they'll know that I'll change whatever I need to change for them.
0: yeah, that's amazing. Excellent. So we talked about mistakes made that uh, mistakes that customers make when they're selecting a contract manufacturer. Um, So, you know, it's important. There is a process that, that your customers go through to select you or to select somebody, what's the process matrix has to select the right customer. Who's the right customer for you?
1: Um, Because we're family owned and it's, ingretted into the the core of every employee here and multi-generation and some of the things that we we really look for is that it's going to be a true partnership um, and, and part of one of those core principles we talked about in the entire production system is you know just beating up a vendor isn't it's in fact it's just bad business uh, in fact now because we don't beat up our vendors, we're actually able to get parts and we don't go on the, the dreaded word now, allocra- allocation. So um, allocation is where they're just going to limit how many parts you get and they're going to spread the wealth. Uh, you pay your bills on time, you treat your you treat your vendor correctly. Um, we can overcome some of the allocation things that are going on in the industry right now. Um, one thing um, that we really look for is that if we have that partnership and they're open to Um, what I love to to put in the place is some type of uh, uh, full functional test at the end of the the end of the process Um, because it doesn't matter how good you are at everything you do and how much inline quality you have um, something will get to that phase and that was our learning curve as matrix is um, we used to do we do a lot we still do a lot of variable speed drives for the mining industry well believe it or not it's very painful carrying an 80 pound variable speed drive down a mine all the way and hooking up to a piece of equipment and then it don't work so everything that we know that we we can get our hands on and we will do either we will build the tester or we will manufacture the tester or we get the tester from the customer and we embrace a full functional test at the end we want to make sure that product is doing what it's supposed to do when it leaves out of here and there are no shockers um, to to the industries we support so just like going down in a mine, going up a windmill and putting in one of our, one of our pitch control systems that feather the blades, you know, that has to really work after you've climbed all those stairs and you hauled that thing up yeah. and you could really make some people
0: angry. For That's them. a very That's practical there. example of reliability, right? It's not a, it's not a statistic. It's not just a number. Um, it's not a percentage. It's, it's a person wasting an hour of their time uh, going yeah, down a yeah, mine, they don't, climbing they don't, up a ladder.
1: Yeah, they don't use words like out-of-box failure, right. uh, you know, parts per million failure. They use more livid voc- vocabulary. They
0: use They're words we probably don't want to say in the show. Right, exactly. They that's use, exactly correct. They use a lot of WTFs and, and acronyms like not favorable. Uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. There are real humans that uh, and real lives that are affected by reliability. Um, and... which, is,
1: which is exactly why we embrace the, the one escape. One escape to a customer is one too many. And, and we, we force the learning from that. And we don't take it down, when, you know, we have GIMBA boards up everywhere. We do not take down that pain point, even if a customer's visiting. Because I'll ask them, what's this? they go, hey, the world's not perfect. And if you walk in thinking the world's gonna be perfect at a contract manufacturer, even in your OEM place, um, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. There are going to be some issues. And as long as you catch all those issues and you do full functional tests, because we have uh, FDA regulated products here, right? And, and the go and no-go comes directly from the customer linked to the FDA. Um, at the end of the day, um, if I get full functional test, I'm a much better performing organization because there's a learning point from that. One, you miss a shipment because you're, you didn't get the full functional test. It'll make you swim upstream fairly quickly and find out what's going on.
0: Right. You mentioned you do a lot of FDA work. I, re, I can give you a, a funny example of, of FDA-type work. We, you know, we're, we're an equipment manufacturer. We're in the cleaning business. That's my day job. And uh, one of the products we make is a, a cleanliness tester, a rose tester. And we had a, uh, I think it was Medtronic, that sent us some boards to do some testing. But they said we have to send our quality people in um, to, you know, look over your calibration procedure. We just need to monitor your calibration procedure and check it off the list you're doing it right. I'm like, okay. So they they sent in a couple of people and then they asked us, okay, calibrate the machine. We'll just watch. And they had their clipboards. And part of, you know, so we did the calibration and then we tested a board. And part of testing a board is we have to know the surface area of the board. So we have a, a little metal ruler that's glued to the table and we put the board up against the ruler length and width. And, uh, and then, you know, times two, and that's the area, surface area of the board. And then they asked us, they, they stopped us, and they said, we need to see the calibration certificate or the calibration sticker on the ruler. <laughs> like, like, can we agree? Can we agree that this is, this is about a foot? You know, this is about 12 inches right here, you know? And, and even if we were off by 50%, it, it's really not going to change the numbers all that much. But nope, we had to stop the testing. We failed the audit we had to buy a calibrated ruler, you know, that pre-calibrated ruler that came with a cert and, um, and then you know, have that glued down to the table and they had to fly back out and do it again. But yeah, I can't, can't imagine how, I can imagine, I should say, how difficult it is to do that type of work because they're, you, they are looking at so many different things and there's so many different moving parts in your business that, that they're interested in. That's, that's certainly a challenge.
1: Yeah. One of the, one of the things we've learned is that to get repeat, repeatability, which is what really everybody's looking for, right? A form, fit function, repeat, repeatability, repeatability. Um, everybody's has all the J standards, all the other stuff we have to operate by. But at the end of the book, it has these, those simple phrases, right? Does it fit? Is the form correct? And can you repeat that process over and over again? And the regulatory firms, especially the FDA and, and, FEA FAA and everybody else want to know that that is being produced the same way every time and with any tolerance that everybody agrees on. And so that's why any contract manufacturer, I tell them you need to automate as much as you possibly can, because if you have humans involved, a Monday production from a Friday production or a Wednesday production has a larger tolerance difference than a machine piece of equipment. I,
0: re- I remember you know, I'm kind of a motorhead, and I remember uh, the the saying, you know, never buy a GM product that was built on a Friday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and when when we got a lemon, we always call it a Friday car. So yeah. to your point, Monday needs to be just as uh, uh, Friday needs to be just as accurate as Monday, and and every day during the year. Um, Patrick Stimpert, Matrix Group, thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, your information was very insightful, and I don't think I've talked to another contract manufacturer that. Looks at things quite from your angle, um, very analytical, very detail oriented, very um, lean, and and into the percentages that uh, that allows you to make the statements that you could compete with your background, with your emphasis on lean, that any U.S. manufacturer can can stand side by side cost wise to a, a offshore manufacturer that. You know, I'm a big believer in buy local. You know, we, you know, unfortunately, some of the things in, in our equipment are not made in the United States, but we will certainly purchase them from the United States. But we, you know, I'm a big believer in buy next door. And if they don't, if you can't buy next door, buy in the next city. And if you can't buy in the next city, buy in the next state. And if you can't buy in the next state, then then you go overseas. But you know, I'm a big believer in in um, if where you buy it from makes a difference between. Makes a difference between profit and loss. You're you're probably in the wrong business, right? Um, Correct. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I remember going to uh, Quiznos, you know, the sandwich shop. I'm not sure if they're in business anymore. I always used to complain because they would start off with a piece of bread. They would put your, you know, the the, the meat on the bread, and, and the bread was on a scale. And then they would take start taking pieces off until the scale went down to the exact number. And I remember thinking, if if the difference between profit and loss is one extra slice of, of, of uh, turkey, um, they're in the wrong business, right? You know, I would rather have food falling off my plate you know, and, and feeling I got the best value in the world than, than the way they did it. So it's nice to see that uh, if you put the work in on the front end, then we can compete with uh, you know, pretty much any place in the world whose sole benefit is labor, labor costs. You
1: know, right. I I have no fears about labor cost in the future. I just don't. It can all be overcome in automation and process and flows. Um, and as your theory was, um, the sandwich shop making money. Yeah, i I'm It's the ice in the ice in a soda, right? They'll They'll pack as much ice in there as they possibly can when you have one sense worth of soda mix exactly. that's in there. Exactly. And I'm going. Do you understand the electricity that, that right. you just did? The energy
0: to make the ice <laughs> exceeds the savings on the perceived savings on the soda yeah yeah totally agree Well, Patrick it's been a pleasure thanks so much for enlightening me and my audience on on the uh, you know the, the, the inner works of, of matrix group it's uh, it's very impressive and you've given me a lot of hope for our country and in, in, in the future of uh, manufacturing so hopefully more people can uh, can learn from that and, and embrace that themselves so thanks for being my guest.
1: yeah thank you very much
0: Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space, and the Innovations and Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations in Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows. Or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.